focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headlines. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Yoon Hae-jung and Chung Ying. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. I hope you guys had a fantastic Christmas holiday. Did you guys have mm-hmm. a nice mm-hmm. holiday? We have it. Uh, we, had a, we, had, uh, we were live yesterday for the most part and uh, celebrating Christmas in a completely different way. Well, uh, the new year is just around the corner now that Christmas holiday is over with. Uh, come uh, next week, we will be in 2024, uh, which is why today, or earlier today, President Yoon Sagar in the final cabinet meeting of the 2023 year, uh, he called for a new approach regarding the issue of countries sharp declining birth rate, uh, one of the key issues that we've been delving into this past year as well. Uh, he emphasized the need to identify its causes, find effective solutions. Hejung, you're going to start us off with President Yoon Suk-yeol's remarks. So what do you have for us? Right. During today's cabinet meeting, President Yoon stressed the need for a fundamentally different perspective on South Korea's birth rate. Korea's birth rate is already the world's lowest, experiencing yet another decline and the latest setback to the government's efforts to boost its declining population. According to the statistics agency, the birth rate reached a record quarterly low of 0.7 in the third quarter of 2023. Now, this rate is significantly below the replacement level of 2.1, which is the number of babies that must be born to sustain the same number of people in the population. So we need a birth rate of about 2.1 children per woman to maintain the population stably at 51 million. President Yoon said the issue of low birth rates requires us to take the situation more seriously and contemplate on the causes and solutions from a different perspective than before, pointing out that experts attribute the declining birth rate to intense competition, particularly in areas such as education, and stressed efforts should be concentrated on addressing such problems. He added that in order for the incentives for having children to actually be effective in improving the low birth rate, deep research needs to be done to identify what is really needed for couples who are planning to become parents. Additionally, President Yoon reiterated his commitment to completing three crucial reforms, which are reforms in the national pension, labor, and education sector, emphasizing their significance in elevating the country's growth potential. In the meantime, President Yoon also called on each government agency to promptly execute next year's government budget for the sake of stabilizing people's livelihoods. This budget was passed by Parliament last week, and President Yoon uh, added that the confirmed budget aligns with the government's sound fiscal principles. Yeah, he was talking about how uh, amongst the OECD countries, South Korea's economy was like, uh, it, it rebounded really well in the back of uh, a rebound in the trade surplus and the export figures going back in. And uh, he did say that uh, compared to some of the previous administrations, that they're having uh, record high employment rates, record low unemployment rates, and so forth. But the big issue, again, is the birth rate, right? I think I feel like every time we talk about the, the, the birth rate, it, it continues to decline. I think when we started really talking about the issue, we're at like 0.84. Uh, mm-hmm. Every year it's been going down. I think earlier this year was at, at like 0.72, and now it's at 0.7. Uh, there was some uh, sur- uh, there was some uh, research that was done. I don't I forget which 
who conducted the research, uh, but they were saying that uh, move, uh, moving forward to about uh, 2050, uh, the birth rate is going to go up to 1.0 something, which is still far below uh, the replacement rate of 2.1, which then by 2070, they're saying the population of the entire country is going to be under 40 million. We're at 51 million right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's going to be a, a brief moment where the population is going to go up and then it's going to completely go down from there. And so... It's one of those things where I, I don't every government, every administration has tried to tackle the issue. Then you have to tackle, you mm-hmm. know, the, the educational expenses. You have to tackle the real estate prices, right. which it's not it's much more than lowering the prices. It's kind of changing the mentality of the society, which many administrations mm-hmm. have tried to tackle. But it's just unable to tackle this. And then I think another really important issue that's linked with low birth rates is balanced regional development. This is also mm. the something that the government has focused on because in non-metropolitan areas, less people are living there. Mm. So like critical facilities like gyms or libraries, pharmacies mm-hmm. and Daycare hospitals centers. are disappearing. And then which makes it a less livable place for new couples to have kids. And then what was really interesting is was that in the really recent news, like little mom and pop stores in those regions don't sell baby formula or diapers anymore because they don't have babies. Wow. That, that, <laughs> that is a very sad uh, piece of news there, but uh, which is why I think uh, the PPP was uh, getting criticized over their push. I, you know, we haven't been talking about this for quite a bit. At one point, it was the hot topic, right? The inclusion of Kimpo into mm-hmm. Seoul. Uh, and so they were saying that it goes the, against the idea of regional development uh, because if you're going to start increasing the geographical size of Seoul, where you're going to include Kimpo, you're going to include Kuri, you're going to include all these different places, then all the other smaller areas are going to be shunned and mm-hmm. Seoul gets bigger. And so that was the criticism, I think, set forth by the main opposition Democratic Party. But again, it's one of those things where it's going to take years, years, and it, it's much more than government policies. It's really changing the society's mindset, which again, let's face it, no government policy is, has been able to tackle any of this. But uh, we'll see what happens. In the meantime, another major news. So we talked about uh, the former Justice Minister Han Dong-hoon uh, accepting his role as the chairman of the PPP's Emergency Leadership Committee. Well, uh, he was officially sworn in as the chairman, held an inauguration ceremony this afternoon uh, and uh, held, I believe, a, uh, an official press conference in regards to this. Yane, let's get more on this. Sure. So his first day as chairman started off with the ruling People Power Party announcing this morning that the nominee is set to uh, was set to attend the inauguration ceremony, which took place at around 3 p.m. today in PPP's Yeoido headquarter. So before officially taking on his role, uh, Han also completed the party admission process for the PPP. So after resigning from the Minister of Justice on the day following his dismissal motion on the 22nd, he officially Uh, joined the party. Earlier today, the PPP formed the Emergency Committee and voted on the appointment of Han Dong-hoon as the committee chairman through its online National Committee meeting. Then later today, in Han's inauguration ceremony, which marks actually Han's very first official event uh, in his capacity as a politician, Han declared in his acceptance speech that he will not run in the next year's general election, pledging his full dedication to the party's victory. He 
He added, quote, our party will only nominate those who promise to give up the apprehension immunity privilege for lawmakers. Now, upon official appointment, the nominee is expected to use the party leader's office. However, it should be noted that the appointment of the committee chairman does not immediately establish the so-called Hans Emergency Committee, uh, but the appointment of up to 15 committee members must be completed first. Now, senior spokesperson Park Jung-ha of PPP after the National Committee meeting explained to reporters that when the committee chairman forms the committee and presents it at the party's standing national committee, the committee will be officially launched uh, at that point. So he continued to clarify that until then, the party will continue under the leadership of acting party leader of Yoon jae with its existing leadership composition. There's a lot of uh, people quite surprised with this uh, announcement, right? I, well, again, half-half. Some people were surprised, others not. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, there was a lot of people saying that because uh, Han Dong-hoon was considered maybe a favorite uh, to run for presidential election come maybe uh, three plus years later on, uh, following the, the Yoon administration, that his kind of path towards that presidential campaign would be him running for parliamentary election and then maybe a, a leadership role later on mm-hmm. and then presidential candidate. But he's now running this uh, emergency leadership committee and he's vowed that he's not going to be running neither regional nor uh, even a proportional uh, representation he's not going to be running in next year's general election then every four years the general elections happens and that means that come by the next general elections it, it's not going to matter because you're going to have the presidential elections before mm-hmm. that and so now people are saying well what's the next method i mean is he going to be uh ppp leadership and then just right off the bat from there he's gonna uh just straight away uh run the presidential candidate i mean there's certainly a, it's highly unlikely that he's going to hold on to this uh chairman ship uh, role for the next three years let's say uh so there's a lot of question marks uh at this time right now but uh interesting stuff coming out here mm-hmm. uh let's move on to talk about the economy i find this uh, latest statistics quite interesting uh people in their 40s i'm uh certainly approaching that age real soon uh, they're considered the backbone of korea's economy have seen the largest population decline this year uh, after the youth population uh, given the fact that again we do have uh, been seeing a decline in birth rate over the past pl- uh, decade plus uh Hejung, let's get the latest uh, figures in regards to this Sure. With an overall decline in the size of the age group, the number of employed people in their 40s decreased as well. The population decline dragged down the total number of employed people in the job market. And amid this trend, the number of employed people in their 40s hit an all-time low in 20 years as of November. According to data released today from Statistics Korea, the population of people in their 40s marked 7,909,000 as of November, down 139,000 from a year earlier. Now, this is the steepest fall in four years and three months since August 2019, when the number slipped to 141,000. 
From January up until November this year, the total population of those in the 40s age group declined 120,000 on year to post the second largest drop among all age brackets after the population aged 15 to 29, which contracted 178,000. Those in their 30s fell by 76,000. Now this downward trend reverses as we get older. The population of those in their 50s increased by 9,000, and those aged 60 and up increased by a whopping 509,000. And as the size of the age group decreases, the number of employed people is also decreasing. In November, the number of working people in their 40s decreased 62,000 on year to mark 6,254,000 the lowest in two decades since 2003, when it stood at 6,172,000. In the first 11 months of this year, the the number of employed people in their 40s fell by 57,000 year-on-year, the second largest decline after young adults, which posted a decline of 100,000. And people in their 40s have also lost the top spot to the 50s last year in terms of number of jobs they've taken in the job market after they've been taking up the largest portion in the job market for six years. Of these 26,450,000 jobs that were open last year, the 50s accounted for 24%. It was the first time they surpassed the 40s since the records began in 2016, and those in their 40s held 6.31 million jobs, which was 23.8%. In terms of employment rates, which are less affected by demographic shifts, the employment rate for those in their 40s was 79.1% last month, up 0.6% percentage points on year. And the phenomenon of the 40s disappearing was somewhat a foreseeable future as the second generation of baby boomers, those born between the year 1968 to 1974, are entering in their 50s. Yeah, so, um, so those in their 50s and 60s and above uh, lived in a generation where it was normal to see let's say in a family like three, four, five, mm-hmm. six, seven you right. know, <laughs> siblings, right? And uh, starting from those that are entering into the 40s and 30s and 20s like ourselves, we lived in a generation where it was normal to just have like two kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like Three I mean, at the most. Three at the most. Yeah. Do, you, do you have two other siblings? Just one. Just one, right? So yeah. that's two kids. <laughs> Yane, what too. about yourself? Just one sister. I have a younger brother, right? So <laughs> again, we live in a we lived in an era where it was two was kind of like the max. And then, you know, obviously there were others that had three and stuff like that, but it was rare to see uh, families with three and then like mm-hmm. you're going to continue to see that. So we're we're kind of in the 30s, right? And so come we and and again, I'm approaching my 40s. Uh, a lot of the people who saw two, you know, two or less than two kids, uh, that's going to lead to a decline in those in their 40s again, and even further, and then those in their 30s. It's going to keep put, put moving down. Where now at this age, where it's normal to see families with no kids or one child at most, and so that trend continues. And so this is what we've been talking about with the declining birth rate and the the long-term issues that it's gonna bring up is jobs, for instance, uh, pensions, and a number of other issues at hand. And so really is, 
concerning at this time. And I guess now I'm starting to learn that because we've been talking about a declining number of jobs in the 40s, not necessarily because they're losing jobs, uh, but there's just a lack of those declining population mm-hmm. within their 40s as well, which is, I think, a bigger uh, societal issue. Uh, let's Speaking of jobs, uh, this is uh, quite a big news as well. The very first Supreme Court ruling came out stating that when determining compliance with the 52-hour workweek system, the access hours should be calculated on a weekly basis uh, instead of adding the hours worked beyond eight hours each day. Yin, uh, tell us more about this. Sure. So the Supreme Court dismissed part of the charges against a person with last name Lee on the 25th uh, who was indicted for violating the Labor Standards Act and returned the case for retrial with a verdict of partial acquittal. So Lee was accused uh, in the first place of not timely paying retirement allowances and overtime payments to his employee from 2013 to 2016 and then making them work beyond the legal cap of extended working hours for a total of 130 times. So in the first and second trials, uh, Lee was partially convicted and a fine of 1 million won was imposed. However, in the appellate uh, trial, the calculation criteria for determining the violation of the extended working hours limit became a contentious issue. So here is how Lee's company operated its workforce and we have to do a little bit of math here. Mm-hmm. So employees uh, worked uh, by having one day off after working for three days, and consequently, they typically would work for five days a week, but in some weeks, they worked three or four or even six days a week. So given the timeline of this incident, the legal working limit was a maximum of 52 hours. Uh, and the, uh, previously, the appellate court calculated whether the sum of the overtime hours beyond eight hours for each day exceeded 12 hours per week in total. So following this method, for example, if an employee worked 15 hours on two days and then six hours on three days in a week, the total weekly overtime hours would be 14 hours uh, violating the law. Mm. Uh, so the Supreme Court had a different thought on this. So in this, uh, in its ruling, uh, it stated, quote, violation should be determined based on the total working hours exceeding 40 hours per week, regardless of how many hours were worked per day. So in other words, regardless of the daily working hours, the assessment of, of, uh, of a violation of the Labor Act should be based on the total accumulated working hours beyond 40 hours and approaching, of course, the total of 52 hours per week. So following this calculation, the employee's total weekly overtime would be eight hours, resulting in no violation of the law. All right, so how did the government and maybe even the labor circle respond to the latest uh, Supreme Court ruling? Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court explained uh, in its ruling that the Labor Standards Act is setting the limit for extended working hours based on a weekly standard, not a daily one. Uh, However, until now, the Ministry of Employment and Labor has considered both daily and weekly basis to determine whether there is a violation or not. So a labor ministry official said after the ruling that the ministry will review thoroughly whether to apply this ruling to practical administration by the government or not. Uh, The labor circle uh, criticized this ruling, stating that it undermines the intention uh, or intent of setting eight hours as the legal working hours per day. Uh, The Federation of Korean Trade Union described the ruling as outdated and causing unnecessary confusion, conflicting with the calculation method that has been established in the field. 
Let's move on here. Uh, South Korea has been trying to balance itself uh, with its relations with Russia amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. As you know, despite some pressure from Ukraine and uh, its Western allies, including the United States, South Korea has yet to provide any sort of uh, lethal weapon assistance to Ukraine. Although uh, Russia has been arguing that there's been uh, indirect uh, support for lethal weapons to Ukraine. Uh, a lot has to do with the fact, again, that there is business ties, economic ties uh, that's left to, I guess, return uh, to norm once maybe if the, the war in Ukraine is done and over with. But this next piece of news kind of you start questioning what will happen to the relations between South Korea and Russia following this, because now South Korea is going to tighten export controls against Russia and Belarus uh, by significantly expanding its list of items subject to export restrictions. This includes excavators, batteries, larger vehicles, and this, again, in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Hey, Jung, let's get the latest updates on this. Right. Under the revision to the regulations on trading strategic items, South Korea's trade ministry added 682 more items regarding heavy construction equipment, rechargeable batteries, aircraft components, and machinery, among others, to the list of items that are banned from shipping to Russia and Belarus. And the move came as these items are deemed very likely to be used for military purposes, although they are not classified as strategic items under South Korea's export control scheme. By adding 682 more restricted items, the new regulation will raise the total number of items on the list to 1,159. And the revision is expected to take effect in early 2024, following due administrative procedures and the government's issuance of guidelines for exporters. Export controls for some items, such as passenger vehicles, will be further tightened by expanding the export control criteria to include HS codes and vehicle emissions, rather than just having to submit the product name and specifications. In the case of passenger cars, uh, cars that were worth $50,000 or less were on the export restriction list, but the ban criteria has shifted to focusing on vehicle emissions. Passenger vehicles with an engine capacity of 2,000 cubic centimeters or higher are now subject to the export ban, further reducing the number of vehicles that can be exported. Now, most of the passenger cars exported to Russia are used cars. South Korea's used car exports to Russia surged to a little above 19,600 units in the year 2022, which was up more than 700% from the previous year. Now, the change in criteria will essentially make it impossible to export all medium-sized cars to Russia and Belarus. Now, when these restrictions are implemented in the future, the export of such items to Russia and Belarus will basically be prohibited, but export license may be issued on a case-by-case -case review if certain requirements are met, such as contracts signed prior to the enforcement of the notification and exports to subsidiaries. So I was, uh, despite years of driving, I was today years old when I found out uh, <laughs> CC stood for cubic centimeters. And uh, because many cars uh, exceed 2,000 CCs or cubic mm -hmm. centimeters, uh, you're looking at a large number of uh, models being banned for exports there. 
Let's move on. Uh, Speaker of the National Assembly, Kim Jin-pyo, uh, holding bilateral talks with the Speaker of the Japanese House of Representatives, uh, Fukushiro Nukaga. Uh, there he praised the improvement in the relations between the two countries, stating that it was creating a positive momentum uh, for trilateral security cooperation between South Korea, the U.S., and Japan, as uh, demonstrated during the August's uh, Camp David Trilateral Summit. Uh, Yein, let's uh, fill us in on the latest. Of course. So Speaker Kim is actually currently on his three-day official visit to Japan, uh, which will last until the 27th. So during the talks held in the Japanese parliament this morning with Speaker Nukaga, Kim stated, quote, through uh, seven rounds of South Korea-Japan summits this year and continued uh, communication between leaders, a significant momentum has been created to overcome various hurdles and strengthen the Korea, uh, South Korea-Japan relationship. So he further quoted public poll results in both countries to indicate that trilateral security cooperation is considered a desirable direction uh, by the people of both countries. And it is highly regarded among the younger generation in both countries as essential for the security of the region. He continued to highlight the economic gains the, the countries have seen from the relations normalization, including the currency swap agreement worth $10 billion and lifted export restrictions, which all led the trade volume to recover its 2018 level. Uh, Nukaga, who took office in October after serving 10 years as the chairman of the Japan-Korea Parliamentary Union, is well known for his Korea-friendly stance. And he also saw eye-to-eye -eye with Kim uh, in today's talk in recognizing the improved relationship and its benefits to the countries, expressing his ho uh, high hope to continue on with the uh, with pursuing bilateral cooperation in various domains. We're going to stay in uh, Japan because uh, following the Japanese Ministry of Environment and TEPCO, uh, they've also, TEPCO has uh, decided to reduce the number of seawater analyses conducted in waters around the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant uh, during periods when the contaminated water is not being discharged. Uh, Hejong, what are they talking about there? Right. The uh, TEPCO, the operator of the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, announced yesterday that it would reduce the frequency of seawater analysis during the period when it's not discharging con contaminated water. August 24th was when TEPCO began discharging the contaminated water. And since then, they've been collecting seawater every day from 10 spots within a three kilometer radius of the power plant to measure the concentration level of the radioactive substance, tritium. But from now on, the daily analysis of the seawater will only be conducted until one week after the discharge, this at four spots within a 600-meter radius of the discharge outlet, the outlet being about one kilometer away from the plant. And aside from this period, analysis would be conducted only once a week. At the uh, six spots located further than 600 meters from the discharge outlet, Analysis would be conducted twice a week during discharging periods and only once a month during non-discharge periods. Now, TEPCO explained that they've changed the plan to focus on monitoring during the discharge period 
And previously, the, the Japanese Ministry of Environment also analyzed seawater around the Fukushima plant once a week, but now it will only do so only once a month during non-discharging periods and twice a month during discharge periods. And typically, the discharging goes on for around 17 days. So far, TEPCO has discharged the contaminated water three times up until November uh, 20th and plans to begin a fourth discharge in late February next year. Okay, so the concern with this, and we knew this was going to come, one of the big uh, controversies in regards to the release of the uh, the contaminated water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant is that uh, Japan and TEPCO used the cheapest method in place, right? And so this is another money-saving, uh, I guess, strategy that they're putting in place. But the problem is we've only gone through, uh, what is it, three discharge, three phases so far, right. and we still have many, many, many mm -hmm. phases to go in the many years that they're going to be releasing this. And so many experts are saying that moving forward here, as as they increase the volume, increase the number of discharges, that it's going to require more analyses. And I'm hoping that there's going to, they're, they're only going to keep this method of, you know, once a month and uh, twice a month uh, during discharge time for the time being. Because once they start increasing the number of phases, that there's, there's a need for more uh, analysis put in place. But... Uh, Again, the controversy still remains. And uh, there's also been reports that the Japanese government plans to explore new export markets for scallops, uh, which has been blocked from Chinese export routes since the release of uh, the wastewater there. Uh, the targeted market includes the European Union and South Korea. Yane, let's get more on this. Sure. So according to Kyodo News on the 25th, the Japanese government revised its execution strategy at a ministerial meeting to expand the export of agricultural, forestry, and fisheries products. The Japanese government has set new country and region targets while maintaining the export target of 65.6 .6 billion yen, and that's approximately 600 billion won, for scallop exports by 2025. For Korea, the target was set at 4.1 1 billion yen, accounting for 6.3% of the total export amount. For the EU at 4.5 billion, for Thailand at 2.4, uh, and for Vietnam at 500 million yen. Now, earlier, China implemented an all-out ban on the import of Japanese seafood in response to the release of contaminated water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant, and it had a critical blow in the Jap uh, Japanese scallop export to China, as their export to China used to account for more than half of their entire scallop export as of 2022, according to the Japanese Ministry of Fisheries. Since September 2013, Korea has prohibited the import of seafood caught in eight Japanese regions, including Fukushima. Now, after the uh, today's report was released, the Korean government expressed its intention to continue import regulations and radiation inspections on Japanese seafood, stating, quote, it is Japan's plan after all. So it's, it's, it's all the more concerning for scallops and oysters and shellfish. And the reason for that is because these shellfishes they use their siphons to suck in literally everything and anything that's within the water. And mm -hmm. so if you've seen these tests where you put like a very cloudy uh, seawater into a tank and you put a couple of oysters or shellfish, it turns clean. 
Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> and we're eating that, right? <laughs> oh no, no, that's right. You, you know why there's so much noroviruses during the winter time? Mm. Because they absorb all of these. Yeah, it's because it's the oysters <laughs> are the biggest around this time, right? Yeah. And so noroviruses come from the uh, bacteria within the fecal matters, right? And so when fishermen and oh my goodness, I hope no one's having dinner with it right now. Uh, when fishermen dump their fecal matters into the ocean, as they do. <laughs> Uh, all of that is being sucked in by the oysters and shellfishes Yikes. and so forth. And so when you're eating these raw self shellfishes, all those is going into your... That's why there's a high number of uh, norovirus cases uh, during the wintertime when they say that it's oyster season, which is why ever since I had norovirus, I, I refuse to eat any raw oysters and shellfishes <laughs> during the wintertime. But this is why it's very concerned because they're going to be sucking in all the, the tritium and all the radioactive materials. Let's go over to the Middle East. Uh, very concerning here, Israel intensifying uh, their attacks in Gaza, even on Christmas Day, uh, despite international calls for a ceasefire. Some 250 Palestinians killed, 50, uh, sorry, 500 others injured in a 24-hour period. Hedging, let's get the latest situation over in the Middle East. On Monday local time, this would be Christmas, Israel intensified its attack in Gaza, conducting an airstrike targeting the Megazi refugee camp. Palestinian authorities said that 250 Palestinians have been killed and over 500 people have been injured over the past 24 hours. According to Gaza's health ministry, since the start of the conflict on October 7th, the death toll stands at 20,674, while 54,536 are injured. A Gaza health ministry spokesperson said the death toll could rise as the airstrikes targeted residential areas where many families were living, many of the victims being women and children. The airstrikes, which began just hours before Christmas, continued until the early hours of the morning on the 25th, causing residents in the area to experience the worst night since the outbreak of the conflict, according to Palestinian media. And with temperatures dropping and poor weather conditions, Palestinian refugees are struggling to keep themselves warm during the winter season. Meanwhile, the Hamas leader in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, uh, appeared in his first public message on Monday since the conflict outbreak, remaining defiant while grossly inflating the uh, group's achievements in the war. The Hamas leader said that Hamas is facing a fierce, violent, and unprecedented battle against Israel, but he also claimed that the group was on its way to the crushing of the Israel Defense Forces and said Hamas will not submit to the occupation's conditions. Now, according to foreign media outlets, Sinwar falsely claimed that the Al-Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas, had targeted over 5,000 Israeli soldiers and officers and killed about a third of them, which is over 1,500. The actual figure of the IDF deaths is one-tenth of the of what the leader alleged. According to the IDF, 156 soldiers have uh, so far been killed in the ground operation in Gaza, and the number injured stands at less than 200. So the statistics, the big controversy is you look at the, again, not to say that uh, soldier death is any better than any other deaths, but... Uh, you look at, there's not a whole lot of figures on how much uh, Hamas casualties there's been. 
but I'm sure the proportion of civilian death is much higher than the number of Hamas that's been killed uh, since the uh, armed conflict began. Uh, also, Israel and Hamas received a proposal for a ceasefire from its mediating country. We're talking about Egypt, but uh, both sides sort of displaying a uh, lukewarm response, indicating potential difficulties in further negotiations. Uh, Yane, round this out to what's happening over there. So Egypt's mediation proposal includes a phased approach to ending hostilities in Gaza and re- uh, releasing Israeli hostages and Palestinian detainees, as well as establishing an interim government in Palestine. So it is considered the most comprehensive peace negotiation proposal since the outbreak of the war. And multiple overseas media reported that the proposal was first discussed between Egypt and Qatar and was later presented to Israel and Hamas. Though Israel and Hamas showed a cold response to this proposal. They did not outright reject it. Apparently on the same day, the Israeli uh, cabinet met late in the afternoon to discuss this proposal. And according to uh, reports, the Egyptian mediation proposal is a basically three-stage plan, uh, which begins with a two-week-long ceasefire and the exchange of hostages and prisoners, leading to the establishment of a transitional Palestinian government that governs both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank along alongside the uh, Jordan River. Under the mediation of Egypt and Qatar, Palestinian political groups uh, of Fatah uh, uh, and Hamas would participate in discussions about the formation of an interim government. So this plan is expected to face strong opposition uh, from both Israel and Hamas. For Israel, this plan contradicts its goal of declaring a war, which is to eradicate Hamas, and uh, any inclusion of Hamas in the interim government is directly opposed to Israel's intention. Uh, Hamas has not officially responded to the Egyptian proposal, but the possibility of relinquishing its power over uh, over Gaza that existed for the past 16 years seems unlikely. Uh, Other news reported also uh, citing a U.S. government official that while the United States sees some uh, positive signals in the Egyptian proposal, it remains skeptical that it will lead to an actual breakthrough. Well, also the Israeli uh, finance ministry came out saying that they believe that the armed conflict is going to go on for at least another two months uh, and they're going to need like 14 billion dollars or something like that so seems like uh, this uh, conflict is going to continue on into new year guys thank you very much for coming in today have a fantastic rest of your night and uh, we'll see you guys again thank Thank you. you you can listen to korea now with me sj lee by downloading the arirang radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.